And given that it was grey market, did you feel mm-hmm. unsafe? Are we talking Murder Mountain Netflix documentary type here or are we talking um, <laughs> bougie sort of, you know, lab quality? So, <laughs> yeah. so, so where I worked um, is actually, it was actually pretty close to Peanut where that uh, documentary is based out of. <laughs> right. Um, and the property I worked on had uh, a bad history. So it was very good. I had a dog and a gun on my hip at all times. Today's guest shares her incredible journey from hitchhiking with strangers to wild days in Northern California being a weed farmer and surviving a horrific car accident and sustaining TBI. Her story of resilience and transformation is truly inspiring, overcoming physical and mental obstacles while learning important life lessons along the way. Episode 104, Danielle Rosenbland-James. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in. To bring on the inspiration. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Danielle. Thank you. Thanks. It's great to be here. Your story is one of a TBI. A TBI? Yeah. Of TBI? I don't know the exact frame, but traumatic brain injury. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could say that I had a, a TBI, a traumatic brain injury. Okay. How long ago did you acquire the brain injury? Wow. It has been nine years. Wow. So nine years ago. What was life, and it was in a car accident, so we'll get to that event, but what was like life like prior to the car accident because how old were you if it was nine years ago because you're looking like a spring chicken <laughs> thank you um I was 25 when the accident happened okay so really mid-20s living your life I'm assuming going out with mates very social not that you won't be social now but in terms of <laughs> that sort of peak I would say sociability and well, for me, it was drunkenness, but not anymore, Danny. <laughs> I won't speak for uh, you on that. <laughs> oh, I was I was very much like that then, as you. <laughs> when I was uh, 25, it was party lifetime. Um, I actually, every um, summer, would go and work in Northern California. So I was actually on my way to Northern California when the accident had happened. So you were on a road trip to Northern California? Um, yes. So what I would do is I'm originally from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and I would usually go back there to see family and friends when I wasn't working on the farm in Northern California. And the accident happened in Wyoming on my way back to Northern Cali on uh, black ice. And it was a seven car oh. pilot. Wow. Seven cars. Okay. <laughs> So were you driving by yourself? Talk me through the sort of, I nearly said blow by blow, but that's probably a wrong <laughs> turn of phrase, Danielle. <laughs> it's, it's Talk okay. me through I the events. What you... 
<laughs> Talk me through the events of the day. Yes. Okay. So this accident happened April 13th in 2014. And I uh, just recently bought a manual, what was it? A manual truck. I can't remember the brand or anything, but it was me and my dog, my little road dog. <laughs> and I just remember like seeing the pile of cars and just like, oh shit. <laughs> and then I kind of just blacked out and I guess what I was trying to do was miss them, like go into the ditch or something. What ended up happening was I hit them with the front of the car, flipped, and then I spun around 360 and my truck turned into a convertible. The whole top was ripped off. Oh um, my goodness. Yeah. So it was open and then I got hit again when I did the whole 360. And it ended up cutting up my uh, top of my head. <laughs> and something that was pointed out to me was, if I had been taller, I would have been decapitated. And I'm like, thanks for that. <laughs> Benefits uh... of being short, I suppose. I'm I'm a tall person, so I hate to think what would have happened to to <laughs> me if I put myself in that situation. So, how long had you yeah. been driving before you saw the pile up ahead of you? Um. I don't think it was that long because the weather was really bad and I ended up staying at a hotel instead of driving because I was like, oh, I don't feel comfortable. And so I woke up the next day and I started driving, I think, 11 or 12 in the day. Um, and then I was on the highway and I saw this. And like as I turned on the highway and everything at the beginning, I was like, oh, I don't think they would have this open if it's that bad. But then I kept driving and maybe it was a half an hour or an hour had passed. And then the whole, I was the last one on the scene, which luckily I was the last one. <laughs> but I was also the um, the worst damaged person. Like that uh, was the injured worst out of all of them. So, <laughs> so you had, so obviously you tried to break and you could see what was happening. You knew that you were going to um, come to yeah. grief, so to speak. So you, so just, re so you f hit and then flipped. No, um, so I clipped the truck. My flipped. truck clipped one of the other ones, and then it did a spun around, a three sixty oh, spun okay. around. Sorry, and I thought you said flipped, not clipped. Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> close. That so would have been clipped, really did crazy. A, clipped, did a 360, and then... And then the back end was also hit of the truck. Right. So I ended up, uh, what was it? I ended up getting four concussions and three internal bleeds. So how did the top of the, you call them trucks, it would have been a, a four-wheel drive for, for us. Um, okay. I, I, uh, a truck to us is like a um, I know, like a big rig. You guys, I think you guys call oh, it like okay. a semi trailer. Yeah. So, <laughs> what ha what happened to cause the top of your truck to come off? Um, I'm not quite sure. I'm assuming that 
it must have been a part from another of the vehicles that was sticking out. And then it like pulled it off as if it was like a sardine can or something. Wow. So yeah. you got four concussions. <laughs> mm-hmm. How was your dog? I was very shocked. He was able to get out and he was completely fine. Um, so once the sheriff found me, he thought I was dead on site. And then he realized that I was still okay. Um, he mentioned that that was the most blood he's ever seen out of a person before. At the weather, it, I would think it was below freezing which was beneficial for me since I wasn't, I didn't bleed out. Um, and so is that because your blood was running like thicker because it was cold or is it because it was freezing and therefore clotting, like stopping the bleeding? Why is the, yeah, it, oh, sorry. I was going to say, why is the cold significant? I think it's because your blood doesn't come out as much because of the cold, it helps um, keep it in. If it was hotter, then the blood would flow out easier um, because of the weather. But yet, since it was so cold, it helps me not bleed out, which is very beneficial because then I'm alive. <laughs> yeah, good thing. So, <laughs> so he <laughs> saw you, saw you unconscious with all the blood, mm-hmm. and went obviously deceased. Mm. Well, I actually wasn't unconscious yet. Um, I guess he saw me move around and I said, my head, my head. And so he understood that I must have hurt my head really bad. That's where all the blood was from and all these things. Um, So I had to be helicoptered to Salt Lake City, Utah, to their ICU there to get help. Why did he think you were dead, though? I think it's just because he first saw me there and I didn't oh. move right away. Oh, okay, and so, okay. Yeah. And okay. so he just sees all this blood. So he's just like, what? <laughs> Goodness me. Glad you um, moved and he saw you and he could obviously get you help. Mm-hmm. So you're yeah. in Salt Lake City, Utah. What, like, what happens from there? You arrive at the hospital being um, mm-hmm. helicoptered in. Mm-hmm. So before they um, put me on the helicopter, they um, intubated me, which means they put me in a coma to mm-hmm. help my whole body and everything. Um, and then I get to ICU and I was out of it for for days because they had intubated me. So I wasn't really sure what was happening. I didn't understand why I needed help and all these things. And um, I remember that they pointed out to me that I kept getting a little frustrated when they were asking me questions to like read the clock on the wall, like what time is it or these other things. And I'm like, I obviously can't read it. I don't have my glasses because they were broken from the accident. And I think I just got upset that they would ask me to do these things that was like, come on, you, I can't read because I don't have classes. But I guess that is also something that they look for with TBIs is um, it can be common for people to get angry or agitated easier. How long were you in the ICU for at Salt Lake City? I was in that 
for 10 days. And who, how did your, how did your family get nom- like notified that you're there? Um, so my father has told me a few times that they had a officer, police officer come to their door and the pretty, pretty much what the officer said is they might need to start seeing a priest. So that's not a great way to introduce possible death of your daughter. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, that's how they got to know. And so my parents and my my best friend and um yeah those guys they went on a road trip to get to me in utah so then they were there so they had to go through like that really bad ice black ice and stuff so how long had you been in hospital by the time they got there um i think it was maybe roughly a, a day or so Okay. Because I think they've learned about the accident fairly quickly. And then they're like, we're leaving now. So you're in ICU for nine days, you said. Mm-hmm. When did you start becoming more aware of that they're bringing you out of a coma, I'm assuming, and asking you to read the clock and then putting you back in? No, it, it's just that um, when they intubated me, I think it's they give you some kind of drug or something to intubate you, and yeah. that will wear off after so much time. So then finally I start coming to, um, and I, I can't remember exactly when that started happening, but um, yeah, I do remember that I felt a bit foggy and wasn't really fully understanding why I was in a hospital. Um, yeah, and it was just, it was hard for me to grasp things, like use my, my brain. So it, yeah, it was overall just difficult to think. Did you remember the accident straight away or did it sort of come back to you after a few days? I think it was more that it took time for it to come back. Yeah. Yeah, it was probably a few days. And then it was like, oh, yeah. But when I was talking with, um, because I had to have a lawyer over the accident and everything, and he was explaining to me that it is pretty common for TBI or people that have been in traumatic accidents not to fully remember it. But you do? Uh, no, I don't fully remember it. Cause I mean, all I, like, as I told you earlier, I just remember going, oh shit. And then, yeah, then it happens. And that's, that's all that I remember of it. Probably all you want to remember of it. If and you know, <laughs> probably not something you want to try and actively try and bring out of the memory. <laughs> yeah. Talk to me about your recovery process. How I understand, my understanding is that there's different, um, severities of brain injury and therefore different Mm -hmm. symptoms as a result of it Mm -hmm. how bad was yours and what were your symptoms so i found out that i also had fractured my neck Um, and and the sheriff had told me that it was very close for me to being 
paralyzed for the rest of my life. So that's a bit scary. Um, And um, as I told you, my dog had survived. Well, the sheriff saw that I had dog food and realized and then found him. Well, he had to go to the pound until my parents came. And at that pound, they let my parents take my dog out for free because they heard about how bad the accident was. And they were so happy that I was alive from what they had heard. That's nice. That's nice of them. Yeah. Yep. And so my dog, he saw how bad I was in the hospital and he didn't want to leave my side. So he made it a little difficult for nurses to work on me and stuff. But my parents, when they came, um, yeah, when they were there and everything, they ended up having to keep him in their truck and check on him and things like that. So they could, so the nurses could work on me and stuff. But yeah, I also had um, a, a gash in my head. So I think that was around 27 stitches for that. I had to relearn how to use my brain. Um, uh, my what does balance. that mean? What does that mean you had to relearn how to use your brain? Well, they wanted to make sure that I, I knew how to write. If I uh, could remember like my friend's birthday, um, if I knew if I could remember how to like turn off the stove and take care of myself. So they had me do like these tests to make sure that I wasn't going to burn down my house or anything like that. So, uh, so really taking you around the basics of being able to be any form of independence really and live, live independently. Okay. You mentioned balance. Mm-hmm. Yes, my balance was really bad. I guess when I was still intubated, um, two nurses had to like help me walk around or help me shower to do pretty much anything because I couldn't, yeah, my inner balance was so off that I couldn't really stand because I just felt like I was moving all the time, felt wobbly. Wait, you had a tube down your throat being intubated and you were up around walking? Oh, no, they, so when they intubated me, they um, gave me medicine and all that stuff. And then later when I was getting better, when I was coming out of it, that's when I was able to walk around with them. Oh, okay. I was like, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) You know, walking around. I'm like, well, that's a new thing. I've never heard of that before. Um, (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Okay. So balance, did that come back or did you have to do rehab to relearn the balance thing i mean i still have a little bit of issues with balance randomly um but it has gotten better i just have to be on top of like exercising because that has helped me loads like yoga has helped a lot with my inner balance but at the beginning i couldn't really be in a dark room without feeling like i was gonna fall over wow Mm. Wow, that's just your sensory perception of, um, sorry, the sensory perception of depth changed. Is that what caused no, the balance was, issues in it, the dark? It's the it's the equilibrium within yourself, your own inner balance, and <sighs> that can get off. So, how does the dark affect that? I, 
I have no, yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I thought it might have, that's why I asked about the death perception. I thought, well, at least yeah. you may have uh, like a, your, uh, I don't know, so obviously your eyes or something would help with that balancing and if it off, you wouldn't have yeah. that as a reference point, but maybe not. Maybe we need. Maybe this yeah. is where we have to have Google or a neurologist tell us <laughs> what what yes, the issues are. <laughs> now, um, yeah. so real, so full on severe TBI. How long were the symptoms at their worst? Um, I think it wasn't until um after four years or so. Then I actually had less pains and things but as of to this day I still might have like a really bad day like within a few months or something where I have a really horrible pain in my head where I might have to lay down for a few hours in the day or something. So this was nine years ago four years Mm -hmm. was really bad so that's 29 how did that impact social life, work, career, um, everything, relationships? Yeah, it it made it very, very difficult. Um, when I was with my friends, like as I was uh, healing right away, I went back to Sioux Falls, South Dakota with my parents and my friends. And I stayed there for physical therapy, occupational therapy, a chiropractor, and a masseuse. And in that time frame, I had friends telling me that I turned into being 16 years old again. In what <laughs> because way? Because of the way, uh, because the way I acted with them, or there are some jokes and things they said that I just, I wasn't getting. Um, my maturity level seemed to go backwards so you reverted back to sort of a 16 year old that's interesting and when Mm -hmm. did that when did you sort of come back to being your normal self or have you come back to being your normal self I think it maybe took about a year or two before I started feeling like myself again it maybe was even three years it, it it seemed like it took a bit, but I at least was, I didn't, no one said to me as they did before that I was like acting like a 16 year old again. They're like, oh, you're starting to seem more like yourself. At least that was after a year or two. Did you find that friendships fell away during that time? Um, surprisingly, no. I think mostly everyone understood that I was going through something that was out of my hands. And I know some of my friends kind of felt that they just hoped that I wasn't going to be stuck as I was because they could see how lost I seemed in my eyes and how confused I was over things before that did not confuse me. Were you heavily medicated at the time as well for your pain? No, and that's something I was very against doing because I wanted to make sure that I didn't overdo it. And if I was medicated, I definitely would have overdone it and then I would end up paying for it with my body later. That's smart because a lot of people, and particularly the medical industry collectively, 
like to throw pills at things and you know yeah mm. yeah no I wanted to know what my body could do and couldn't do and mm. I wanted to try to heal as fast as possible so I could start working in Northern California why so did you like want to work in Northern on... what was Northern California what was that <laughs> that was my job I was a uh, weed farmer <laughs> I love it. Talk to me about being a weed farmer. <laughs> so I did that for five years of my life. And I think it was my fourth year that I was trying to go out there for. And and the people that I worked for, like they understood that I was going through this and everything but they also are like you know we are on a time limit because the weather and everything can't wait so it's mm -hmm. like ah, felt that stress on oh I gotta be there I gotta do that still and because I, I liked doing it it was something I I became passionate about once I found it and it's very relaxing to be surrounded by a bunch of plants and just working with them was it legalized at the time um Yes, <laughs> it was it, at, at, at that time, it was in the gray zone. Okay. So yes, it was, it was allowed as long as a certain amount. Right. And for medicinal purposes, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, how does one start to become a gray market weed grower? <laughs> Um, I think it's, you just have to meet the right people. Mm. <laughs> or the was... wrong people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I was, um, actually hitchhiking <laughs> is another thing. Jesus Christ. And... This story just gets worse. <laughs> okay. We'll start, we'll keep going. This, and then I want to come back to the hitchhiking because to me that is super dangerous. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyways, I was hitchhiking with a friend. And we knew some people in that area. So we uh, met up with them. And so I started being a weed trimmer at first. And then I started meeting more people. And then I found another friend that I met up with that was on a different farm. And then they had all these, uh, a lot more opportunities to begin growing and everything. And that I was a lot more interested in. And so I ended up turning into one of their farmers. So is this a small scale or a large scale operation? Um, I think it would be, I guess it depends on what you see as big and small, but the, uh, well, it doesn't the, sound like it's a few backyard plants. Like it look feels like it's maybe <laughs> a couple of acres. Oh yes, definitely. In that case. Yes. Um, and the boss that I worked for, he has, I think over six properties too. So they're like spread across um, Northern Cali in different cities and things. And given that it was gray market, did you feel mm -hmm. unsafe? Are we talking Murder Mountain Netflix documentary type here or are we talking um, <laughs> bougie sort of, you know, lab quality? So... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So where I worked um, is actually 
it was actually pretty close to Peanut, where that uh, documentary is based out of. <laughs> right. Um, and the property I worked on had uh, a bad history. So it was very good. I had a dog and a gun on my hip at all times. <laughs> is there... Oh, I'm not even... I was going to... It's so different. I was going to ask about the gun re- regulations in, in California, but there's no point. We're already in grey zones. <laughs> Let's not go any further. I'm in Australia, so it has no bearing on this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. Okay. So you were doing this for five four or five years before the accident yeah and had that had that been so considering you were hitchhiking at the time and sort of fell into it so to speak in terms of a a job opportunity is this a career and uh, that you wanted to pursue like did you want to become a producer yourself I never really thought about it and then I was put with the opportunity of making it happen and I'm like why why not I mean, I've always loved taking on new opportunities, trying new things. I I have a problem where I, I can't focus on something for too long. I get bored, so I have to switch it up. And this was a great that, opportunity for that. Is that TBI or is that ADHD? That's ADHD. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I have that too. <laughs> I'm yeah. not formally diagnosed, only self-diagnosed, but I'm pretty sure that I've got it. That's why I asked. Okay. Yeah. So so the concern is then you'd get bored if you started as an operation. What do you mean of like farming? Being a producer, farming it yourself. Would you feel that you would get bored if you wanted to push, like have an actual company doing that? I mean, I... I can see that being a huge possibility, but if I had it and it wasn't as it is, as it is for today, because now it's very expensive to do this, um, I could, you know, give the job to people below me and start having it done that way if that was the case. Um, but I, I stopped doing that because of my accident and my body couldn't handle doing the work and the labor that comes with it. I mean, I could barely do an hour a day of work on that farm. Right. So mm. so you've gone from that that employment to unable to 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 be physically physical in terms of your work. Mm-hmm. How do you then move if that's your only skill set? How do you move into other career opportunities post accident? Um, I think I pretty much was just trying to take one day at a time, try to heal and feel better in my body and in myself, because since I was dealing with this and I only could do an hour a day when I was so used to doing like 10, 12 hour days of work, hard labor. Yeah. Yeah. And I also, my mentality and everything. I felt like I was useless. I felt like I was a piece of pile because I could only do an hour a day and I was just having to stay in bed most of the day because of my body and pain. And it was actually my husband today that was my friend back then that like would force me to go to bed (laughs) when I was working in the fields and things. And he actually found me a couple times hiding in a plant, working and things. He's like, aren't you supposed to be in bed? Go back. And so he would have to like force me to go back into bed. 
Had you ever had an interest in horticulture or anything like that prior to working in that industry? Um, no. No, I didn't. That was my first time. <laughs> you just seem to have such a love of plants. That's all. That's why I wondered. So uh, talk to me about hitchhiking. How the hell did you start hitchhiking <laughs> when all I see is serial killer documentaries <laughs> coming out of America? You guys seem to have the highest serial killer population in the world, for which <laughs> I still don't know why. And you're out there hitchhiking. <laughs> so, um, as I said before, I love trying new things. <laughs> um, I, I was actually on a road trip with my sister and some of our friends and dog and our dogs. And, uh, it was a VW bus and it ended up catching on fire. <laughs> so we, uh, saved most of our things and our animals and ourselves. Anyway. She talked me into going to the Rainbow Gathering, a hippie festival that was in uh, northern Washington. Uh, so I went to that, and on our way out of there, I, I'm i a bit stubborn, I know that. And my mother and my sister also kind of uh, is, so we butt heads. So we butted heads a little too hard, and I was like, I can't do this, I'm going to walk. So my friend and I and my dog started hitchhiking from there. <laughs> and that's pretty much how it started. And I mean, I was okay with it because my friend has done it before. And he's a guy, I'm a girl, and then we have a dog. So it's a little more safer than just being a solo female hitchhiking. What sort of characters did you meet when you were hitchhiking? Yeah, you meet all kinds, that is for sure. Um, you have to get really good at judging a person within like 10 seconds. Well, that also, the ADHD would help with that as well. So, Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> oh, goodness, what's your best <laughs> story that's come out of hitchhiking and what's your scariest story that's come out of hitchhiking? Oh, let's see. I would say the the best one would be when we got picked up by this father and daughter. And I thought it was really funny because the daughter's name is Bonnie. And then my dog's name uh, was Clyde. So then it was Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde, love that. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, they picked us up when they were on, um, I think they were dropping off stuff for their job or something. And they ended up letting us stay at their RV um, and took care of us, gave us a bunch of food. And like, they were genuinely nice people. So it was really nice to get that experience to see that. I mean, as you're saying, serial killers, all these crazy people. Yes, there are a lot, but you know, the, the good people get forgotten about as well. And those are the ones I think people should try to remember a bit more. An interesting way of looking at it. What was your worst? <laughs> Saying that, remembering the good people. What's your worst, Danielle? <laughs> uh, so the worst, I think, would be I was hitchhiking by myself and my dog. Oh, and, my goodness. Um, okay. There, there was this other guy that was also hitchhiking in the same direction. So mm -hmm. we're like, oh, let's, let's hitchhike together. And I'm like, that's probably good. So we do that 
um, this truck comes to and stops. It's two guys driving it. Um, and this is in California. So you have to, you're legally not supposed to ride in the back in the truck bed. So we had to lay down in the truck bed. And these two guys are driving for a bit. They start slowing down and we're like, okay, that's weird. And then they started shooting guns. And so we're like, what? And then it was like pretty much right after that, I was like, no, I, I don't want to be in this anymore. And we ended up getting them to finally stop. And it, it started feeling like to me, they were bringing us somewhere we didn't want to go. Oh my So goodness. it was like, yeah. So it was like right after that, we started walking, even though it wasn't a great spot to be walking on the highway. So what made you think that they were bringing you where you didn't want to go? Is that because they were diverting off the main route? I think, I think it was some, yes, I think it was something like that, or it maybe was just this feeling I get. And I have always learned that I should always follow my gut feeling. It's, it has yes. gotten me out of so many situations. It's a hard thing to do though, isn't it? It's a hard, mm-hmm. to, sometimes I was reading this thing the other day and I was talking about the reason why um, particularly women get themselves into trouble, like not get, get themselves into trouble is probably the worst way of putting it, but I don't know, like not get themselves out of awful situation, you know, tricky situations a lot of the time uh, is because they don't want to be rude. And now I've worded mm-hmm. that awfully and I don't come after me because you know what I mean, everybody that's listening, Yeah. but you don't, people don't want to be rude. So then they don't say, you know, fuck off. Um, and they try and be nice or whatever. And it puts them in a, in a situation that they don't want to be in sometimes, not all the time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I agree. But as I am the person I am, I'm okay being rude. <laughs> yeah. Especially if, especially if this um, gut feeling is telling me like, whoa, this person's a bad person or whoa, the situation you need to get out of it now. I'm like, okay, I'm listening to that instead of this person that I've just recently met. I don't care if they're thinking I'm rude. I am worried about myself. Where have you honed that? Like, where did that come from, that confidence in yourself to listen to your gut? I have had an interesting life. <laughs> um, I'm I've gathering really... from the grey market yeah. that we're growing, you know, <laughs> gun on your hip and a dog at your side sort of a <laughs> yeah. lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> no, I've, I've, I've met some really sketchy people in my life and I've also been in toxic relationships and I, I think I learned it probably at a young age because there are really bad people I've met when I was younger um, that like with cut my cousins or things that I had to, I felt like I needed to protect them. So I think that's why I was like, I'm going with my gut feeling because they deserve to be, treated better than this person's treating them or it was like I I want to help protect them and they need this so it was more for other people that I gained this way of doing things I think that's interesting more for other people than for yourself mm-hmm. it's an interesting mm-hmm. um realization mm. mm-hmm. but 
regardless, you honed it and it's an important thing to hone yeah. and trust and, and listen to your gut. Hmm. Yeah. What do you think is the biggest reason why people don't listen to their gut and they put it off and second guess themselves? Mm-hmm. I think that as what you kind of said was they don't want people to feel that they are being treated rudely by you. Um, I think it also has something to do with that a lot of people lack confidence in themselves or they second guess themselves all the time, which mm. I, I I understand that being very difficult for a lot of people because it, especially if you don't feel that you are competent enough on the topic or something, you're always going to be a little bit more on the second guessing side. You know what I always look at people as well and I don't know why but I always go I always look at how kids and animals act around people as well because they don't Uh care if they're they're rude they don't have those Mm -hmm. social etiquette norms that have been sort of you know hammered into us you know as part of society and so I always go the kids and animals how they act around people as well I always think that's Mm -hmm. a really good judge anyway I digress yeah no I no, I agree. It does. It 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 definitely lets you know. Um, like with my dog, there were certain people that he just did not like, and I'm like, okay, we're staying away from that person. I'll I believe you. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So yeah, we've definitely Good old avoided Bonnie. some people. Clyde. Clyde. Bonnie. Clyde. Clyde. <laughs> Clyde. It was, Bonnie, was Bonnie the girl. Was the, yeah, it was the girl. <laughs> the daughter. I had a 50-50 chance of being right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. So Clyde's, this this is nine years ago, Clyde's probably no longer with you? Yeah, he he passed away, like, he passed away a month before I had my son. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, I mean... I think it was for the best because he was getting really bad and to lose an animal, someone, I felt like he was my soulmate. So Mm. it was, it it was devastating and being pregnant, dealing with that um, (gasps) and seeing how much pain he was, it was, I felt it was unfair if I kept him going when you see he's in pain, he was having trouble going to the bathroom, was having accidents and he was starting to not like walks. And that's like, that was his passion was walks and being outside and he was starting not to like it. Mm. Okay. I'm not going to get upset. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even my dog. Yeah. I'm such an animal lover. Jesus. Yeah. Um, so you've, you mentioned that you had, you had a child. So con- congratulations, mm-hmm. but it sounds like that was a, a couple of years ago now. Have you got more than one? No, I just have the one. He's two years old now. Wow. He is more than enough. His energy level is everywhere. <laughs> How has the recovery been since he's come along? Has it rapidly improved because you've had to force yourself to do things that you normally wouldn't have done? Um, I think it was already starting to do pretty good before having him. And then once I had him... I had to relearn because of all the emotions going through the body and all the things from being pregnant and 
having a child and feeling like you're maybe not enough and then realizing you are and up and down and ugh. <laughs> so I've had to even, learn how to adjust with a child <laughs> even now that you're a mom mm -hmm. and or mo mom you guys say um with it we have it with the you you guys have it with the o um given that you're a yeah. mum now and given that you've had well i would call it a i don't know if wild's the right term but it's a very different lifestyle i mean i wasn't hanging out with growing weed with a gun on my hip and i wasn't hitchhiking <laughs> at that age so it's a very that that to me is a little risky behavior um <laughs> Is that something that you would lean into if he wanted to do that? Or would you say, I've done this for the both of us. You'd let me just tell you the lessons. You don't need to worry about it. I think I would probably be more like I've done it for the both of us because the U.S. has a lot of things happening with it. Um, there's a lot more violence happening. I mean, the gun shootings in schools and everything. We don't live yeah. in the U.S. We live in Sweden right now. Mm. And I've lived mm. here for five years. So this is the place that I feel is a lot safer for my little guy. That's interesting. Did you move because of that? I moved because I fell in love with a Swede, the guy that I told you about that helped me on the mountain to stay in bed. Well, he is a Swede and... He introduced me to Sweden um, during min midsummer, so in June, when it's the, the best time to come. So I didn't know that about was, the winters yeah, that are that... horrible. <laughs> I think that he may have planned to be there in June for that reason. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm happy we moved here because this is a better society and place for families compared to like the U.S. I mean, they have paternity leave here, meaning the father and mother get time um, paid leave from work. How long is the paternity leave over there? I think it's a bit less than a year um, combined. And then the, I think half or a little bit more than half of that time, you get paid 70 or 80% of what you would earn from your job. And then the other part is, I think, 30 to 40% of your wages pretty good mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah that's pretty good I don't even know I don't have kids so I don't know what Australia is I think you get a year's worth of leave but you don't get paid for that full 12 months oh wow yeah so you get it's a few months that you get paid and then the rest is just I think what you've had to save up beforehand but but they keep yeah. they have to keep your job open for you to come back after 12 months um okay but in terms of the financials I'm not sure I haven't gone through it so I haven't looked into it mm. <laughs> interesting so would you ever go back and live in America now um now I think that's a 90 percent chance a big no mm. because of all the things that are happening there um with the violence because it seems like it's just increasing and there are places where I just went back there actually for a month I think that was yeah that was in May I went back there for a month and there are places that they felt it felt completely different it de definitely didn't feel safe there anymore and that is not a pleasant feeling to have <laughs> 
Do you think the American dream is still alive and well? Mm. I think that some people maybe are still trying to hold on to it, but really, I don't think it's there anymore. I mean, just alone, the cost of living is so high. It makes it so difficult for people to make ends meet on minimum wages and things like that. I mean, I have a friend there. I think she has three jobs to help support her two kids. Hmm. Um, I know that's a big debate in Australia at the moment in regards to the cost of living because it's it's always been high, but it's getting worse with the inflation that's happening at the moment. Um, yeah. But I have never been and never lived in America. I can only see what's happening in the news and social media. So I was wondering mm-hmm. what your thoughts are in it because it seems to be, as Australia is becoming more so, America mm-hmm. seems to be leaps ahead in regards to how divided it is as a country, which is sad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. There's a huge um, gap and it's become even bigger with like poor and rich and the middle class is starting to like lose its place. So they either go to poor or they go to rich, it seems. Mm. So it's like the gap the is becoming bigger. ridiculous. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then on top of that, you know, the so many of the rights are getting taken away from the people as well. Um, there are different laws that they've been trying to pass in all the different states because they have laws specific for the state as well. So that makes it a little difficult too. Mm. Mm. We might need to talk about that offline, Danielle, because I don't want to get too political <laughs> on this because... Yeah, I'm probably going to start talking about what's happening in Australia and it's probably not something that uh, we don't have freedom of speech enshrined in our constitution. So um, we'll just leave it at that. Okay. Um, Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So what is it, what's on the agenda now for Danielle? You've got a two-year-old running around keeping you active. You're living in Sweden at the moment. You're no longer growing weed. Um, (laughs) What? (laughs) <laughs> what else could what I is... be doing? <laughs> uh, it, it's legal. Is it legal in Sweden? Oh no, it's very uh, illegal here. <laughs> okay, all right, we'll leave that one alone. Um, so, what's life hold for you now? So, I actually um, started a travel blog about six years ago. Um, so, I've been traveling. I think I've traveled to fourteen different countries now. How amazing um, so to travel! Yeah, so I've been uh, planning on keeping that up. I am also now an author, so I wrote a children's picture book um, called The Lost Little Dragon. <laughs> and what was the catalyst for writing the ago. kids' book? I I was pregnant at the time when I thought about it, and I think it was maybe because I wanted to write a story for my little guy, and so I started working on it while I was pregnant and then once I had him then I edited it and worked even more on it and then finally I just published it a month ago so I think it was probably because of the little guy in my tummy and helping me realize how he's going to be and then I get to see how he is and I'm like oh yep you are definitely this little stubborn dragon (laughs) 
That's gorgeous. Well, congratulations on being a published author. <laughs> Thank you. Are you going to write more children's books? I, so I am self-published and that in itself is a whole nother thing. Um, it, I learned, I've been learning so much from it, which is good. And it's also a bit bad because it, it's so time consuming and having a child on top of having a travel blog. Oh, and I'm also in school. I'm studying to become an English teacher. Wow. <laughs> so I kind of take too much on my plate at the same time. <laughs> oh, so well, I probably will. Take it at the moment. Yes, yes. Danielle, how can people find you to follow your blog and also um, your book? Um, so they can find more about me and all these other things um, on misfitwanders.com. And that's my website, my travel blog. And on the homepage, I also have a bit about my book. Just to, re- just to sort of finish off, one last question. What did the recovery and the TBI teach you about life? Oh, that is a really good one. It, it taught me that I didn't want to be alone anymore. I realized that me being a party animal, all about partying and just like not really thinking about the future, not really figuring out what I really want to do with my life. It wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. And it made me realize that I have so much more potential than I was giving myself. I could do so much more than I was doing at the time. So once I healed and started feeling better, I realized what I really wanted to do with myself, what I wanted to try to accomplish, what I wanted to push for. Which was? (laughs) Which was to write a book, become an author, um, focus on travel blogs, so traveling, um, experiencing other cultures, experiencing other adventures within life, um, being happy and caring more about myself as a person and of course having my husband I mean he's the world to me and he definitely saved me from overdoing it in my whole body back in the day so Danielle it's been a pleasure speaking with you thank you for coming on the podcast yes thanks for having me Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 